0: This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation? Huh? Sequels suck. Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's all about money, boys! Here we go again. No, no, Misa, stay! Misa called Jar Jar Binks! Misa, your humble servant! Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Franchise Fatigue. And I'm very sorry about that. But I figured if we start there, the only direction the show can go after this is up. So, um, this is a show where we talk about film franchises one installment at a time. I'm your host, Gabe Green. And as always, I'm here with my co host, James Hamrick. How's it going?
1: Pretty good. Uh, thinking about walking out after that, though. Uh, me, too. So. I guess. <laughs> yeah. I'll stick around.
0: Yeah, and so you, as you've probably gathered, we are here to talk about Star Wars. We just finished the original trilogy, and tonight we are starting on the prequels with the uh, best beloved film in the saga, The Phantom Menace. And to help us with that discussion, we are joined by Blaine Grimes, uh, also from Home One Radio. Thanks for joining us again, Blaine.
2: Hey, yeah, thanks for having me back on. I will say after that introduction, all I want to do is stay more, so <laughs> that's the kind of episode this is going to be.
0: Nice. Um, so you want to introduce yourself to our listeners. I'm assuming people have already heard the Empire Strikes Back and they, uh, know, they know a bit about your show. But if they, in case not, you want to introduce your show and uh, anything else you might be, be sure, up to yeah, online.
2: I am a co-host of Home On Radio, which is a weekly Star Wars podcast with Joshua Crabb, who you heard on the Empire Strikes Back episode. And we are talking about Star Wars week in and week out. So that's the main place you can get in touch with me online or on my Twitter account and stuff like that. And most of the stuff that I that I tweet about is Star Wars and other <laughs> movies. So there you go.
0: All right. Um, and before we begin our discussion, I want to ask you guys, if you enjoy the show, to please take a moment to go and rate and review us on iTunes and like us on Facebook. All right. Let's just uh, go right into our discussion of uh, Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. Uh, James, you want to tell us a little bit about how this film came to the screen?
1: So the concept for the prequels goes back to the writing of Empire Strikes Back, actually, from what we can tell um it happened around the idea when Lucas or it happened around the time Lucas had the idea of making Darth Vader Luke's father. Um, Lucas started creating this entire backstory for Anakin and Obi-wan you know he kind of teased it in like a throwaway line in the in a new hope with the Clone Wars and that they fought together there but he really decided especially with the big reveal that that was a story he wanted to flesh out um, and after that there were rumors of planned prequels and sequel trilogies you know he outlined nine maybe even 12 different stories he wanted to tell um including the original trilogy um and there are actually interviews from press tours uh during empire strikes back where mark hamill is like very openly talking about you know this new trilogy that's going to be coming out that's going to flesh this like flesh out what you learn from empire strikes back so you know at this point it's not even a rumor that lucas was bouncing around this idea is just commonly known um However, Lucas was pretty burnt out after making the original trilogy. Um, as beloved as it was, it took like a you know fairly big personal toll on him just because of how involved he was with, with everything. Um, so it wasn't until around a decade later that he started even approaching the idea of making the prequels. Um, and it was actually Jurassic Park that convinced him that the technology was finally there um, for him to tell the story the way he wanted to tell it. So in 1993, uh, the year Jurassic Park released, it was announced that he would be making the films, and writing officially began on November 1st of 1994,
0: which was weirdly uh, exactly 47 days after I was born. <laughs> um, so originally, Anakin was going to be 12 years old. Um, however, he decided to make him nine to make the uh, separation between his mother uh, with from his mother more impactful for the character. Uh, the original working title was called The Beginning, but it later became The Phantom Menace. Uh, having much more money than than he did previously, and with the availability of uh, digital effects, Lucas wanted to go for a much grander scale, which, which he had always wanted to have for Star Wars, but the technology held him back. He asked uh, Steven Spielberg, Robert Zemeckis, and Ron Howard all to direct the film, but they all said that, nope, <laughs> you should probably do it yourself. Um, rather controversial decision.
1: So, as far as returning performers from the original trilogy, um, Ian McDermott returned to play Senator Sheev Palpatine, Um, this time without the old age makeup, it's it's kind of funny. You know, we talked about how he was much, much younger than the character he was portraying. And yet now with the prequels, he's, he's finally the right age. Um, Frank Oz returned as Yoda, who is originally a puppet, but it's ended up, um, being redone in CGI in later releases. Uh, and then Anthony Daniels as C-3PO. Uh, although this time C-3PO was a puppet rather than a suit. So he only provided the voice on set instead of performing as he did in the original trilogy. Um, Also returning was Kenny Baker uh, as R2-D2 and Warwick Davis as several different characters in the film, actually. Um, The central character of Anakin Skywalker, Lucas hired child actor Jake Lloyd. Uh, He found his performance much more natural as opposed to the very mannered, stilted performances you would get from child actors. Uh, with the role of the wise Jedi Master Qui Gon Jinn, he hired Liam Neeson, and we don't even have to to ask why. <laughs> I was listening to a podcast the other day um, with someone who was like, you know, online when he found out first that he was cast as a Jedi, and he was like, "No decision in film has ever made more sense to me," and it seems seems about right. Uh, Ewan McGregor was chosen out of a pool of actors that could believably play a young Alec Guinness. They wanted somebody who had, who could really mimic certain mannerisms from him. Um, for Queen Padme Amidala, they hired Natalie Portman due to her work in the profession, uh, Leon the Professional. And for <laughs> the most important role in the film, stage actor Ahmed Best was hired to perform and voice the Gungan Jar Jar Binks. Um, I think the funniest story in terms of casting was that Samuel Jackson pretty much got himself the role by like campaigning for himself. He just said, I, I want to be in a star Wars movie. Like, please hire me for that. Um, and George met with him. And was like, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll, I'll write you in. And now we've got like a fan favorite, um, and Ray Park was originally just going to be a stuntman for the film, but Lucas was so impressed with his lightsaber skills and his just overall presence, he was cast as the Sith apprentice Darth Maul. Um, however, Lucas didn't think he had the right voice, so his lines were dubbed over by Peter Serafinowicz. Finow- Sarah Sarah um, yeah,
0: I didn't have to look that up.
1: Just came intuitively. Um, yeah. Then, of course, we've got a bunch of different side characters. Uh, Terrence Stamp, Brian Blessed, Andy Sacombe were cast as Chancellor Valorum, Boss Nass, and Watto, respectively. Um, a couple other different things we found out was... So, Kira Knightley plays Sabe, the decoy queen, because she looked so similar to Portman at the time. Um, and then Sophia Coppola, daughter of Lucas's great friend Francis Ford Coppola, wanted to tag along on set to learn, directing from Lucas... So she was cast as one of the queen's handmaidens, uh, which is funny now considering she's become a quite well-respected director herself. Um, And lastly, Dominic West and Richard Armitage have roles as Naboo troops, which is something I just found out like a couple weeks ago, and it's it's so weird because you know I love him now because of the Hobbit. But there's these little bitty roles you can see that he took before then, like at this and Captain America, kind of odd little side roles here and there.
0: Um, So filming began in June of 1997 in the uh, Leavesden studios in England. Uh, They returned to Tunisia for the Tatooine scenes. However, there there had been no records kept of the exact locations where they filmed A New Hope. So they found an archaeology student whose uh, thesis had been on tracking down all the the A New Hope uh, set locations throughout Tunisia. So they used him with the location scouts to rediscover all (laughs) the, the old lost locations. I was reading the, uh, the official behind-the scenes book on the making of this film, and it talked about how, how fast Lucas worked on this one. He said they, they did uh, they worked through 36 camera setups what, like every day, no matter how long they took or how short they took. They, and that, that's a crazy amount of setups, especially for a film you know this huge and complicated. It was the last of Lucas's Star Wars films to be shot on film, but even while they were in pre-production for this, Lucas was, uh, was intending to go uh, digital uh, for the second one. Uh, Once again, Industrial Light and Magic handled the uh, groundbreaking special effects and the model work within the film. Uh, John Williams uh, obviously returned uh, to do the score and develop the many new and iconic themes. Um, Ben Burtt came back as well to do the sound design. And uh, he also edited uh, all the film's action sequences, which are actually very well edited. So that's cool. Um, And finally, it was released on May 19th of 1999. I think we should just somehow br- briefly talk about just the, the the hype that was built up uh surrounding the at least the release of this film um when i hear that the, the, when the first trailer was released this was obviously before the days of youtube a lot of fans would just buy theater tickets and go and watch the trailer and leave before before the movie even started
2: that is true i did that i didn't leave before the movie i watched whatever movie it was i don't remember what it was but i did go just to see <laughs> oh, wow. the trailer yeah
0: so I uh, guess uh, going from there, do you remember your first viewing of this film and uh, what has your relationship been with it over the years?
2: Yeah, I, I remember my first viewing of this of this film really well, and I remember the whole experience surrounding it like you, like you said, like going from going to the theater to just to see the trailer, um, hearing my dad talk about it excitedly and everything. Um, it was for me as like a, a nine ten year old kid at the time. I feel like I was just about the perfect age to experience this movie. Um, And I think for that reason, that it came along at that point in time in my life, like The Phantom Menace, for better or for worse, really is like my Star Wars. Um, It's my generation's Star Wars. And so, when I look back on this movie, in spite of all the silliness and all the criticisms that are very valid of this film, like I have nothing but a deep and abiding love for this movie because it was the film that um, marked a transition for me as a Star Wars fan. So, I grew up um, on Spielberg and Star Wars, basically. Um, Jaws is the first movie I remember seeing as a way too young kid, and... (laughs) Um, I saw Star Wars at about the same time, and so I grew up on Star Wars. My dad was a huge sci-fi fantasy nerd and raised me on Star Wars. He read me some of the EU books. uh, Growing up, a lot of the stuff flew way over my head, but he still still read the stuff to me. He bought me toys. Um, I even made it to the theaters to see the special editions, although I really don't have anything other than vague memories of, of that, I was still a little bit too young for it to um, hit me fully as to what was going on. Um, so I grew up on star Wars and as much as I did and still do very much like love and cherish the original trilogy. Um, that was my dad's star Wars, right? That was, that was what he had when he was, when he was my age as a, as a nine or 10 year old kid growing up. Um, but the Phantom Menace and, and really the entire prequel trilogy, that was my Star Wars. That's where Star Wars went from being something that I loved because my dad instilled that love into me. And I'm thankful for that. Um, but it being something that I could really own, um, take ownership of. Um, so, you know, I would beg to go get toys and I, you know, went and got as many Star Wars toys as my, my parents would buy me. And then I got to dress up as Darth Maul for Halloween. Mm-hmm. Um, nice. after the movie released and, and all of that good stuff like it was, it was when Star Wars became my own thing and so that's why I have so much affection for this movie. Like I said, in spite of like technical criticisms, storytelling criticisms, and all of those things
0: did, did you ever go through a phase where all the criticisms started getting to you and you like kind of wondered if it, if you weren't just crazy So yeah,
2: so that's this that's the second half of this like <laughs> so as a nine or ten year old kid, like all nine or ten year old kids do, I loved the movie. Because like 9 or 10 year old kids love every movie they see. And this was a Star Wars movie. So of course I loved it. And I think I'm trying to how to condense this. Um, I grew up in a very socially. I grew up in West Texas, which is like a very socially and politically conservative uh, portion of the country. And it was not a safe haven for nerds. Um so for me as a high school junior high student who was moving to a new town in West Texas um writing Star Wars fan fiction loving you know Star Wars books and movies and all of these things um it was not the it was not the most inviting place because I I played sports because that's what you did there and I enjoyed them well enough but my heart was with all of this nerdy stuff and there wasn't a lot of room for someone who enjoyed doing both of those things. It seemed like in high school, you either had like the super nerdy kids who even freaked me out. These are like the (laughs) stereotype, like the biggest stereotypes of nerds you can possibly imagine. And Oh man, I hope nobody from high school listens, tracks this time. Listens (laughs) to this, or you had like the jocks. And I was like in this in between space where I liked, like I enjoyed sports and still do enjoy some sports to this day. um, But also enjoyed really nerdy stuff. And so, I think around junior high, high school time is when I started to have anxiety about um, the prequel trilogy. And really just, not even the prequel trilogy, but Star Wars as a whole, I just sort of let all of that stuff, I kept all of that stuff hidden. Um, And then I think even, honestly, as I started learning more about film as an art, going out of high school and then going into um, undergrad and um graduate school as i started to learn more about film as an actual art form um and <laughs> um understanding the validity of a lot of the criticisms people had <laughs> about the phantom menace from a filmmaking point of view um i had a lot of anxiety about that too and i didn't handle it very well um you know people would talk about people would bash phantom menace as i'm sure we're going to talk about this but like as was the rage to do not all that long ago. And I would kind of join in half-heartedly with those conversations or just kind of smile and nod along or whatever. Um, And sometimes I would join along and and that kind of went on for honestly, probably three or four years until three or four years ago, um, to be perfectly honest, where I would just sort of like bash the prequels Mm -hmm. because it was easy to do. And then the force awakens hit and, again, I'm sure we're going to talk about this in more detail, probably. Um, but then people didn't like um, the sequel trilogy. <laughs> and we're still having that conversation. And so sometime around that point, I was like, well, look, like this is a part of my childhood. They can be technically bad films, and I can still love them. And people are still going to complain about Star Wars no matter w- how good the films are. Um, so screw it. Like, I'm going to love The Phantom Menace. And... People can like it or not like it, but I can still, still appreciate it. Um, so that's kind of where we, I'm not like an apologist. I, I don't really think everyone should have to like episode one um, or anything like that, but, but I enjoy them. In fact, I was, as I was watching, getting ready for this podcast, again, watching <laughs> The Phantom Menace with my wife, I was like, I was like, so how do you feel about this? And And she's like, well, like I've grown to enjoy them and appreciate them a little bit more than I used to. Um, partly because of me, but it still just doesn't hold that place in her heart for her because she's a little bit younger than me. Didn't grow up in a movie culture and things like that. Um, so they don't hold that place in her heart, but anyways, that's, that's a very long and rambly story of, of like where I am now with the Phantom Menace.
0: Nice. Uh, how about you, James?
1: Um, so this should be like the last movie in which I'm really having to try to try to remember what my experience is like cuz i don't really i definitely don't remember my very first viewing of it i think it was only 4 when it came out um and so it was like it kind of with the original trilogy was just something i was kind of a, vaguely aware of i would see it if it was on like i i have like some very rough recollections of of seeing bits and pieces of it um and it it honestly probably wasn't even until, like I said on previous episodes, where we kind of had that marathon across all before I really watched it beginning to end and at like at a time in which I could fully understand and remember everything going on. So, although like I had definitely seen it a couple times around the time that Attack of the Clones and the Revenge of the Sith was out. So, Yeah. I, I do know that I really did love it at first. Um, and then as I, as I got older, I kind of fell into the same thing that you just talked about. Blaine where it was just like, Oh wait, you know, I'm, if I'm going to be this person who professes to be like a big, you know, fan of film, I'm, <laughs> right. I'm socially obligated to hate this. And so like, I did it with zero reluctance. Like I just dove headfirst. Like yeah, it's a piece of crap. This movie sucks. You know, <laughs> Lucas destroyed his own work. And it, And like I, I kind of even like believe it myself. I'd watch it, and I you know, like you said, there absolutely is validity to a lot of it. And so I'd watch it and feel justified. Be like yeah, I'm. Yeah, you know, this is definitely one of those one of those movies people rightfully hate. Um, and then it was probably just a, a few years later after that before I was like wait a minute, I actually really like this. Um, <laughs> and so rewatching, like, you know, I would rewatch it again along like with all the others in Marathons and I just found myself kind of in the moment enjoying it as much as I do like the best of them. Um, especially this most recent watch for this episode. It's just, there's, even amidst all the flaws, there's something so for me like undeniably fun about it and so where it sits with me now is it, it's just this movie that i can really understand why people don't enjoy it but i personally like have a big fondness for it now and you know we've all of these things like the machete order that leaves it off and you just start with uh, attack of the club like that's like blasphemy in my <laughs> eyes now one just as a completionist but too it's like oh there's like i i can't imagine any sort of star wars marathon that happens without duel of the fates or the pod race and so yeah, yeah I, I i really do enjoy the film
0: all right for, so for me I, I do remember my first viewing uh my dad rented a uh the vhs and we all saw his family and I, I had already been a pretty big star wars fan before that and so this just kind of became part of it all and for a good while <laughs> it was my favorite i mean this, the, the lightsaber fights are obviously so much better. The, the the ones in the old films are all crap. Obviously, that's you know the logic of a six year old. Um, so yeah, I definitely this was my favorite for a while just because of the, the action and all the awesomeness. Um, and I was I was definitely a bit of a contrarian <laughs> going as I was getting older, you know, getting into f- online film culture. So I. I never really bought into the general prequel hit I, I would you know pretty viciously defend it online um then you know as I got more more uh, guess sophisticated in how I viewed film I definitely i started seeing the flaws and the like the, the last time I actually saw this film was the uh, two thousand eleven 3d re-release and I haven't seen it since then and so uh, uh, over that period of time even though I, I would, my, my basic position was yeah, they're seriously flawless films. The plot structure makes no sense. All that acting is terrible, but there are like moments of brilliance. So that was kind of my my uh, go to. However, on this last viewing, like similar to James, I, I actually came away. I mean, obviously, I'm not going to say it's a masterpiece, but I came away appreciating it probably more than I've, I've had in, in like a, a decade or so. So, yeah, I'm really excited to start talk, talking about this. So, we usually uh, start off with the discussion of the characters. And I think we should probably start with uh, probably the, the best performance in the film with uh, you know Liam Neeson as Qui Gon. I, th- I think he's the one who probably comes away, away most unscathed from Lucas's very hands-off direction. You know, he's he's definitely experienced enough coming into this film to you know have his own character in his head and be able to be able to stay on that on that one level throughout the film. And it probably helps as a very kind of very quiet, thoughtful character. So even when he's just kind of standing there thinking, you can always see him doing something. Uh, and I think he really brings out the best in the, uh, actors around him. Like, I think the scenes with, um, with, when he's with Portman or, uh, Jake Lloyd or even, uh, pretty August as I think when his scenes with them are when those actors are also at their best. So I think he, he definitely brings a lot of, uh, definitely brings a lot to this film. I just, I just really like the character. I mean, he's, he's just this, you know, wise, noble presence. Um, and you know as i've become more aware of the series at large and seeing how the how Lucas kind of is framing the jedi in in within the prequel trilogy uh part you know i just really love the fact that he he was there kind of questioning a lot of their dogmas before uh, people even realized what, what Lucas was going for so i re- i really like his character
1: yeah i think he's he's probably the strongest character of the film um just any frame with him standing in it, like is just elevated. He brings so much gravitas to the movie. Um, he like, like you said, you know, he's the most experienced actor there. And it seems like he has a way of just conveying a lot with incredibly like subtle facial movements, um, it's just little, little different, like, things he does with line delivery and things. One of my favorite moments, for some reason, I just, I love the way, like, his body language and his facial movements and things, like, whenever Anakin says, um, no one can kill a Jedi, and he just kind of, he kind of smiles, and he's like, I wish that were so. Like, it, it feels like we're listening to almost like a, a conversation that's been had by a lot of different people, like, the idea of the Jedi is there, and he understands you know, just the the conversation surrounding it. He knows the stakes. He knows that Jedi obviously do die. And it it feels like there's a real sense of history. Like whenever he says that, you're like, man, I I believe this guy. He's just with that the way he said that line. He's probably seen some stuff, you know, that makes that line true. And so there are just little moments throughout the film like that where um, it's just different. You know, subtle movements or ways he delivers things, or onto, like I said before, just the way he stands there. Um, and he's got great physical screen presence too. He's an incredibly tall actor. Uh, he lo- his long hair and beard. He just looks like a Jedi. Mm-hmm. And and then, like you, I think my favorite thing about him is the way he looks at the order because he's he's not abandoning it, and he's submitting himself for the most part to the Jedi order. But he's not going to relinquish his own personal ideals, like ideals to them. And you can really see what Lucas was planning on doing with Obi-Wan with him. Because at the very beginning of this film, Obi-Wan is very much this, you know, like by the books kind of Jedi. And he's constantly questioning Qui-Gon. And then you have that conversation towards the end, whenever, you know, he, he apologizes for questioning him. And Qui-Gon just says, you know, like you are you're gonna grow to. You're already a wiser Jedi th- than I am, and you're gonna make an excellent Jedi Knight someday. Just he's like planting the seeds for what Obi Wan will will become later on. Um, it's just I I just really like everything about the character, and I think he's completely earned this position almost as like a, a fan favorite now.
2: Hmm, for sure. And talking about some of the behind the scenes stuff one of the things that that happened coming up to the release of of The Phantom Menace was when the soundtrack was was released or when the soundtrack was announced, the track listing included the track The Death of Obi-Wan, of course, (laughs) which spoiled many... Did I I say (laughs) Obi-Wan?
0: Yeah. yeah.
2: The Death of Qui-Gon. Yeah, Yeah, The Death of Qui-Gon. And so it spoiled a lot of people. It did not spoil me. I, I actually think that At least from my experience i think that story is a little blown out of proportion um because again like the internet is not what it was um or the internet was not what it is now um but yeah qui gon i feel like he is he really is such a rich character and liam neeson is the caliber of actor who i think can evoke um Obi-Wan, and I'm saying the right name, Obi-Wan. And when I say Obi-Wan, I'm thinking specifically of, like, Alec Guinness's Obi-Wan that we meet in the original trilogy. Um, He is able to evoke, like, this wizened old Jedi who is also kind of kooky in his own much more reserved way, right? (laughs) Um, And I think the great thing about Obi-Wan, too, is that one of the major, like, overarching themes of, of the prequel trilogy... One of the main goals, I think, at least, is to show how corrupt the Jedi Order, the Republic as a whole, but the Jedi Order specifically, had be- had become. Mm-hmm. That's something that's being returned to now in the sequel trilogy. Uh, consequently, and I think Qui Gon is like the character that fleshes all of this out, because like like both of you were saying, like he he he's not just kicking against the wishes of of the Jedi order and the Jedi high council in the same way that Anakin will later on. He definitely has his own like his own wishes, his own desires. He is he really is is hell-bent on this prophecy of the chosen one and is just convinced that everyone else has to has to interpret the prophecy this same way. Um and so it sets up an interesting conflict there. And then of course at the same time like the uh, he's telling the the jedi high council that hey like i met this crazy guy with horns uh and I fought him and I think he's a sith and Mace Windu everyone's fan favorite mine and in, mine <laughs> included really is a terrible he really is a terrible jedi like he, he just does <laughs> so much wrong and he's like nah, uh, no I love nah, him there, but that's very accurate there is no way there's no way we they the sith would be able to return without us knowing about it right it's the most
1: cocky delivery too i think we would have under i think we would have been aware if the sith had returned like yeah yeah so dismissive
2: <laughs> um so yeah i think qui-gon brings some really really interesting things to the table including just being like a really warm um performance from from liam neeson like watching like you said watching him interact with um Shmi Skywalker and Anakin, um, and Padme and everything. It's,
0: it's good. Yeah. One thing that really, uh, drew me into his character this time was just watching how the relationship kind of buds between him and Anakin and just kind of going into this family. You know, Anakin invites them in and then just the way they kind of just start trusting each other and the way he, you know, he takes on a very almost fatherly, uh, relationship to, uh, to Anakin and it, it's it doesn't it doesn't happen it happens fairly slowly and it just feels very nice and sweet the way it works out Um, I I'd never noticed that aspect before and it was just it was really cool seeing that
2: yeah for sure I feel like we miss that kind of emotion in the prequel trilogy in Attack of the Clones and we don't get it back till Revenge of the Sith yeah
1: this was recent watching it I think I really finally saw how because I had always loved the character, but I, I was really understanding why he's the actual favorite. Like, I, I know people who, like, across all films, he's their favorite character. And I'm, I was kind of getting that now. One of the things I noticed about his character was that he seems the most dedicated to, to the Force. Um, as we talk about the, like, the original trilogy, one of the things that Gabe and I kind of noticed was that it seems this idea of the Jedi contributing to their own fall wasn't something that was just introduced in the prequels. I think the ideas were there. Yoda's kind of proven wrong in Empire Strikes Back and even in Return of the Jedi. And, you know, warning, you know, compassion isn't the way to go. Like, you know, you must not take into consideration the fact that Vader is your father. But Luke does away with that and says, no, it's my love for my father that's going to save him. And I think the word that would almost best describe uh, Liam Neeson or Qui-Gon Jinn, is like this compassionate person because it just feels like the force has no, it's not anti, you know, emotional attachments, you know, it's pro healthy emotional attachments. So when he meets Anakin and he meets his family, it feels like a very real connection with them. And instantly, like he feels for the plight of these people, especially for this boy. And I think it is a very much like a, like you said, a fatherly bond he has with them. And so in their, in his opening conversation with Obi-Wan, you know, he's always saying, you know, be mindful of the living force. It's almost like he's cautioning him against, you know, just overly dogmatic uh, Jedi sayings and rules and things. He's saying, you know, live, live right here and right now and be willing to submit yourself to the force. And I love that he's not even like afraid to come out and directly say the council is wrong. He says the council is wrong about this boy. And he says to the council, I, without your permission, I will train him. He is the chosen one. And that like incredibly controversial decision to defy the council. If it came to that, to train this boy feels earned, especially in this, this viewing, uh, whenever he takes the blood sample and he's talking to Obi-Wan, just you see as if this is a man who's like becoming fully convinced of something. You know, outside it doesn't matter what the archives say, it doesn't matter what Jedi tenants are, he's becoming aware of something like this. And he knows what's right. And he's he's not gonna allow like this overly dogmatic kind of way of thinking get in the way of what he perceives to be the will of the force. And I think that kind of sets the tone for the entire trilogy.
0: I just had a thought. What if he was right and the will of the Force was to wipe out the corrupt Jedi Order?
1: And it's now being fulfilled in the birth of a new order in 9.
0: Okay,
2: go ahead. (laughs) No, uh, that's really good.
0: And I guess moving moving on to Obi-Wan, he... He's far more kind of subdued and intense. He like he 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 doesn't yet become the very memeable Obi Wan Kenobi from the prequels that we all love in Episode Two and Three. He's far more just subdued. Um, but I, th- I think he does. Uh, he has a little bit of that sarcasm, real occasionally quip to Qui Gon. Um, <clears throat> but the thing that made that stood out to me in, in this uh, viewing was just how great of a sword fighter he is. Like. Like when when, when um, Ray Park and Liam Meeson are fighting, they have to cut fairly frequently and, and Liam Meeson obviously is a bit older than either of them. So he's kind of – he's a, a bit slower. But when, when, uh, when Ewan McGregor runs in there and he goes through like a dozen moves matching speed mm-hmm. and intensity with um, Ray Park. And it's not like he's just doing the moves. He's like throwing his body behind every swing and like jumping around it. It's, it's pretty crazy for someone, you know, who, who wasn't originally a sword fighter or didn't have any kind of martial arts training before that.
1: Yeah, he's definitely, like, his ability to just, you know, get in there with the fights, I think, is a huge benefit to the action of the movie. It's always nice to, to be able to look at the face of the guy who's fighting without having to rely on all these quick cuts and things like that. Um, as, as far as just, like, the characterization of him, yeah, I like that you can see hints of who he is, and that like, you know, even though, like you said, there's no there's not really any memes he's not that sarcastic, self-confident, uh cocky character that we love from two and three yet. He came with the beard. Yeah, I think that's what it is right now. Yeah, I mean you can't really be too cocky and confident with that rat tail, if <laughs> we're gonna be honest. So <laughs> um but you really do see the the hints there, and, and again, just to a different podcast that I was listening to, someone who was saying like, he said whenever he first went into episode one, his big thing was he wanted to see if this guy could really be young Alec Guinness. And he said there are just specific lines that for him in the moment completely evoke that, and one of them was just the way I said like you were right about one thing, the negotiations were short. Like you can <laughs> hear that young version of that very proper dignified Alec Guinness in him. So I think he really was able to, to be the young version of this character that we at this point were so familiar with. And I, I do like that. He, he like with, it almost looks like he's looking to Qui-Gon like for permission to be sarcastic at points. Like (laughs) he'll follow his lead. Like when, when Qui-Gon says, you know, do you hear that? That's a hundred bad things on their way. And, uh, Obi-Wan just kind of follows through with you like they'll blast us into oblivion and (laughs) he looks to Qui-Gon and smiles like he knows that was the setup and and there's no lines whenever he's introduced to Anakin I don't think unless he just says who is this I think but when Anakin introduces himself he just kind of looks at him and smiles and I forget what Anakin says after that but you just has like the most like kind-hearted kind of like friendly smile after that it just seems like this really is the guy that we're going to fall in love with later. Um, So yeah, I just, I like that. He's more, I think him being subdued kind of helps with his relationship with uh, Qui-Gon. You know, you kind of see him being molded into who he would later become. Like if it weren't for being taught by Qui-Gon, he absolutely would not be the Obi-Wan of attack of the clones. And so, we see the same defiance. Yoda even says, you know, Qui-Gon's defiance I see in you. Um, so yeah, I just, I, I really love the growth he experiences in this movie. I think he probably has more of, of an actual character journey than anyone here um, as he's, you know, a Padawan learner during these huge events and he's seeing someone who stands so, you know, in stark contrast with everyone around him and he's able to to grow because of that. But yeah, I I really enjoy his performance.
2: Yeah, I do as well for all the reasons that you mentioned. And I think some of my favorite things are moments with Alec Guinness in a new hope when he's just stroking his beard (laughs) and thinking. And I feel like we get that here a lot here in episode one, just without stroking the beard. But it seems like we've got, like you said, an, an Obi-Wan who is much more reserved, like shows that spark every now and then. But, but otherwise it's just like watching Learning, thinking, right, um, studying the situation, and um, again, like I, I think there's there's a great moment when when he does very confidently stand up and and say, it's when Qui Gon is petitioning to to train Anakin. Mm-hmm. Uh, Obi Wan says, "Yeah, I am ready to face the trials." So he's he's confident, right? It's not like he it's not like he is just such a novice or or anything like that. Um, but he's, he's really already wise, even at that young, young age. And I like that. It feels very true to the character. Is that an idiot
0: about it? Like a a different than I know. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Uh, Is there a character you want to talk about, Blaine?
2: Um, let's talk about Darth Maul. Why not? So Darth Maul was originally, I believe, slated to be played by Benicio del Toro. What? Wow. And that didn't happen. So now... Obviously, Benicio got to make his way back into Star Wars. That's the
0: best character in The Last Jedi, so hey.
2: Yeah, <laughs> many, many years later, Benicio makes his return. Um, but yeah, I think Darth Maul is such... He's such an interesting character because almost everyone loves Darth Maul. I, I feel like if people have anything at all positive to say about The Phantom Menace, they're like, oh, well, Darth Maul was cool, at least. And he delivers you know about six lines... Something like that. Um, and I really do feel like he is... He is a good villain in the film. And he brings a lot... Ray Park like brings a ton of physicality to the performance. But I can't help but love like how Darth Maul... What has happened with Darth Maul since. Oh, yeah, I love how Darth Maul's story has really continued. It's been fully fleshed out at this point. Because spoiler alert... He is he is now dead and we know how he dies and we know what? everything about his life now. Um well, he's dead so he came back. I guess maybe that would be the bigger spoiler if we're, <laughs> if we're he came back from being cut in half yeah, and then died again.
0: After cut
2: in half. Um yeah, he came he came back from being cut in half and um played a pivotal part in the Clone Wars and really has become like I I believe one of the great tragic characters in all of Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Um like, obviously, Anakin is, is a bit more tragic, but Darth Maul truly is someone we eventually come to empathize with. And we get, like, no hints of that here in this movie. He is just, like, literally the the black hat. um, But he's a great black hat in this movie. And, like I said, like, like Qui-Gon was fantastic, and I loved Qui-Gon as a 10-year-old kid. But, like, I wanted to be Darth Maul because Darth Maul was just so... Awesome, like he he rides off on his on his speeder bike, right off just a off a cliff, yeah. and then keeps going. Yeah, uh,
0: and with Darth Maul, you think you have just one of those examples of Lucas's just conceptual brilliance. Just yeah. that character who says, I think it's probably closer to six words uh, throughout the film. But whenever he's on screen, just every all your attention immediately goes on him. He has you know the guy Ray Parks like. Five five or something. He's not very big, but mm-hmm. there's something about just his you know, the facial tattoos, the horns, the hood, the way he stands, and there's just so much presence to him, as you said. And obviously, <laughs> once the fighting starts, it's absolutely amazing. And I, I love that they were able to get you know a real uh, athlete to do that. Like there's just moments. <laughs> I think my favorite moment from him is just when he after they start fighting. And then he's backing up. He like jumps over his lightsaber blade, then grabs that uh grabs that um piece of rubble with the force and throws it against the uh against the door control without even looking and just backs out, trolling the lightsaber. It's like those yeah. are things you can only get with you know a a martial artist of his skill. And he just he's so amazing.
2: Yeah. And that whole duel of the fate sequence is is just that is primo Star Wars in my like. That is, so I say I'm not an episode one apologist, but like I will die on the hill. Oh, yeah. That the duel of fate sequence is as Star Wars as any Star Wars that ever
0: Star Wars. So let's let's just talk about that. Uh, now. We're we're here. We're here. <laughs> uh, go ahead, James. I
1: was just gonna say like there are so many different highlights in that battle. Like one of the things that sticks out to me is whenever Obi Wan is on one side and Qui Gon's on the other, and he's just like jumping back and forth, like he's jumping in place and just turning. But it's so quick and it's back and forth and back and forth and back and forth as he blocks each blow and it doesn't look silly it doesn't look over choreographed it just looks like this is a guy who who knows his stuff he's anticipating every move and he's like clearly the most well-versed swordsmith in the room and there's just little moments like that throughout where it, like there's probably 10 different things that could rightfully be somebody's favorite part of that battle and you know, you can say you hate this movie, but if you don't get goosebumps whenever that second blade emerges, then I your opinion on anything is irrelevant because that moment is just the coolest thing ever. Just yeah. just
0: the setting, like just going through these, uh, you know, these pathways that are high above uh, with these purple light sources going, and even though it's all CGI, I mean, from 1999, it looks great, and just you know, as it moves through, and then you have those laser doors, which are obviously very impractical and they probably don't actually do anything but there's such an awesome concept that we can we can have that pause and you go to you you go to each character and see how they're at what they do when they have this moment of rest you know where obi-wan just kind of glowers intensely and qui-gon goes down to his kind of uh, zen pose and uh, there's such a stirring image yeah and and uh and uh darth maul is just kind of pacing back and forth and you have like that almost jungle music kind of like kind of weird like jungle drum music going on as he's kind of pacing back and forth like an animal and then yeah i love the shot of uh, obi-wan who lights his ignites his lightsaber right before it uh there's no sound but he just senses it with the force whatever but he ignites his lightsaber before anyone else it's just there's so many beautiful little touches to that i think i it's it's for me i think it's probably the best sword fight ever put to film and just the way it's shot in these long, wide takes that, you you know, the actor's going through so many motions and it keeps moving through different levels. And it's just, uh, I I could rant about it forever, but it, it is truly spectacular.
2: Yeah. Anytime you can just, I feel like as a filmmaker, you, you have actors who are talented enough to be able to do whatever the physical scene requires where you can just like sort of set the camera there and let them do their thing. The result is almost always positive. I mean, that's one of the reasons that John Wick is so fantastic.
0: There's something about how one of the the, the big Kurosawa influences in the first film was the way he would have wide shots and allow that uh, were relatively still and allow kind of the interplay between the characters and the, and the staging within the scene give the the shot energy. And that's like really absent through a lot of this film. But like when the action kicks up. All of that is on full display. Just the amount of crazy energy he can put into a shot that actually isn't even moving is incredible.
1: Yeah. It's to me, you know, you would never really think of a scene from like the prequels being taught in film school, but I think this scene, just even beyond just choreography, the tension in this scene is fantastic. The, splitting them up, I don't care if those doors are impractical or not, <laughs> I think that was such an intelligent decision. Like, there is something so fantastic about that moment where obi-wan is forced to watch behind this this laser wall and um and you know you mentioned like the the jungle music it's it's fitting that it sounds like that because to me like the image i have of maul just pacing back and forth it's like when you go to the zoo and the tiger like those rare times where the animals are actually doing something like the tiger like i have this very um vivid memory of going to a zoo and there's this massive tiger that's just walking back and forth and back and forth on this glass uh in this glass wall and that's what maul feels like he's just this this animal walking back and forth waiting to attack it's it's there's something so scary about him um and yeah i love you know he's not at first obi-wan's not even able to make it to the first door and then they open and he just misses that last one, and he's so close. Like, there's—it's so tragic to be like that close and not be able to do anything. Uh, and so, instantly after that happens, and you're waiting after Qui Gon's dead, and you're waiting for this door to open. Like, once he leaps out there, there's so like this was already an amazing battle, but from that moment on, this is just like raw emotion um, that wasn't present in the first half, and where there was like like finesse before obi-wan's just wailing and he's trying to get a hit in and it's it's just so good everything about that fight like every sequence from beginning to end like the initial doorway and the reveal of the second blade to obi-wan finally getting the upper hand it's just like it's this little isolated masterpiece you kind of hinted at this before about just this is the perfect example of Lucas's like conception, like concepts, uh, and how brilliant he is. There, <laughs> it may be controversial. I think Maul absolutely matches Vader in terms of design. Like, there is something so striking about his image. He he looks incredible. And I, I went to a Disney World several years ago, <laughs> and like the the grown up child that I am. I went to like the Star Wars section and there were a bunch of like 8-year-olds around me building their own lightsaber and I was like, "Well, I'm going to build a lightsaber." And without like a second's hesitation, like it's going to be double-bladed red, of course, cuz that's that's the coolest. But the the only line I know he has one line preceding this, but the only line that I remember is just, you know, is at last we will reveal ourselves to the Jedi. At last we'll have a revenge. That's all this character needs. Like it's it's so rare that I would actually say like, "Yes." This character having only one line and yet be a chief character is a good thing but here like just that one thing outside of that outside of this one little motivation which is revealed to just be revenge this guy doesn't need words he's just there to wreck shop and leave and it's just he feels like the phantom menace like this guy mm-hmm. who's always on the fringe of every scene and you're well, I, I was going to say, you're hoping he doesn't show up. Because of how awesome he is, you're kind of hoping he does. <laughs> but for the sake of our protagonists, you're just like, man, I hope he's not around this corner. Because he's just, he feels like a force to be reckoned with. Even though we don't, like outside of a, a super quick little duel, we don't really see him fully in action until the very end. And so that's just a, a testament to his screen presence. That we can see him do so little and yet have such a strong sense of who he is.
0: And... A lot of people criticize the fact that he dies in this film, or quote-unquote dies. Uh, but, I don't know, for me, as like you know, a six-year-old kid seeing Obi-Wan flip over him and chop him in half, and he falls backwards and his body separates, like that was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen in my life. So, I, I really don't care about that at all. I, I think it's absolutely amazing. The, just the, the way he dies is so you know, iconic, as are a lot of things in this film. Um, so yeah, going back to some of the other characters, uh, briefly, this is probably where I would move into some criticisms. Uh, Natalie Portman as Padme, I don't think she's very good in this film, or <laughs> she's actually probably kind of bad. Uh, she's just so stiff and awkward in her line delivery. And, you know, she has a lot of awkward lines to deliver, but there's very little you know, life by the performance, and even less, uh, there's more when she's playing the handmaid and less when she's the, the queen, there's one decent scene from her, I think, is when after they leave uh, Naboo and she's kind of just chatting with uh, Jake Lloyd. I think she's actually fairly decent there. But overall, I, I don't think she's great in this film. I mean, she's definitely proven herself to be a very talented actress other, other places. But I guess she couldn't uh, get, get past Lucas here.
2: Yeah, that scene where she was talking with Jake Lloyd is the one that they auditioned with, actually. Huh. I think she had a lot a lot of practice doing that one. Yeah, I I agree with you there. Like like and it breaks my heart too, because let me tell you, ten year old me is so grateful that George (laughs) Lucas taught us all that a ten year old can, you know, fall in love with a nineteen year old. So like we actually had a shot with our cute babysitter or something like that. Um Like when George she's, Lucas she's star. be fourteen <laughs> yeah. um,
1: well, it's supposed to be
0: fourteen,
2: yeah, but... yeah, but, uh, but there you go,,
0: well, on that note, <laughs> <laughs>
1: but yeah, i I mean, I definitely agree with her. I think one one of the most like poorly delivered line in the movie, although it's kind of become a favorite of mine, just like almost in the way you would watch bad movies for fun is. As she's pleading with Boss Nass, and she says, "You know, like I ask you, no." And then she gets on her knees and says, "I beg you." It's just, so much of what she says; just it really does feel completely stiff and wooden. Um, you know, she she ends up giving two infinitely better performances in the next two films, even though there's a couple of moments. But I mean, here <laughs> it's not quite as noticeable because she's one of several people not giving a, a stellar performance. Um, but yeah, you you do wish that they could have, at least for this first film, had an actress who could convey more authority, especially considering she is supposed to be so young in the film. You know, you'd want the like, okay, well, if she's 14 and, and she's been elected to lead, like, she there's, there must be something about her. And we don't really see why... Why this fourteen-year-old is given the authority to lead a people? But, mm-hmm. um, anyways, yeah, not not great.
0: However, there are some moments uh, that I do like how the film kind of teases out the secret that she's actually the queen when she's disguised as the handmaid. Like the the moment where uh, where uh, the decoy queen assigns her to clean the drawers. Like I think it's just you know one of those great moments of like servant leadership. She probably she you know she's actually the queen showing her thanks to this droid by cleaning him up or um just other little kind of lines or looks um like when they're when they're about they're deciding whether or not to leave Naboo and uh the queen looks to her she says you know we're brave your highness she's obviously kind of communicating her decision it's just like things like that that Lucas laid throughout the film that kind of show uh, what her identity actually is for when it's revealed you assume too
1: much yeah (laughs) there's one character in particular I want to talk about but I kind of want to save him for the end um but I guess before him, we could talk about, you know, the the star of the show, Anakin Skywalker. Um, honestly, in terms of performance, it's not the worst thing ever. I know a lot of people think that this is partially what killed this movie. It's not great, and it's definitely not, like, the chronological entrance I want to see the character of Vader have. Yippee! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Whoa! But I mean it's it's fine as far as kids' performances go. What I do like about him though is that he as awkward as his delivery can be sometimes, he gives the character personality. And I never question that he's committed to the role. Like I look at his performance and I'm like this, even when it's bad, like this is a nine-year-old like who is acting his heart out. You know, he's trying to match everyone else. And I kind of like, I like that about it. Um, And so just for what the role is supposed to be, maybe it's just because at this point I have seen it so many times, but for what the role is supposed to be, it it really doesn't bother me too much anymore.
0: Yeah. I I think it's just a perfectly acceptable child performance. Uh, You see, you see why they cast it because, you know, he's, he's very, there's a lot of life in him. He's very chipper and excited and he, he's not afraid of the camera at all. And, I think the problem is you know, he has a lot of awkward lines that only an adult would say, but yeah. But yeah, he, he's he's a, he's a there's a plenty of life in him. He's a fun child actor, and I think his best scene is the scene where um we would he's with uh Qui Gon and he's testing his blood and he's you know talking about the stars. It's a nice little moment. I think he actually he's actually pretty good there.
2: Yeah, he is. I know shooting was was fairly difficult oh. on him, and uh, Lucas was frustrated with him at times not that he ever was ever abusive or rude to him or anything that at least that we see in in behind the scenes footage but he would just say that you know sometimes sometimes he would he would be on and he would be ready to shoot a scene and and just just have it and then other times he would just have a lot of anxiety about shooting a particular scene or what he was supposed to do or anything um and then i know for later on in in his life after the film was released and had the reception that it did especially by um air quote fans um because they can be so great sometimes like he was bullied quite a bit um and and had some depression and everything he had to, uh, to deal with and partially because of what happened in this film
0: and funnily enough i think his other than messing with a quai god i think his best moments are when he's by himself in in a cockpit be it the pod racer or the the uh or the um the new fighter I mean, it's obviously... You
1: know, oh, like what a fighter
0: <laughs> Oh, yeah. But it's like no no kid, no nine-year-old boy needs directions on how to act when pretending to fly a plane. I mean, so <laughs> it, it's very natural.
2: Yeah.
1: yeah. That's something that's really crazy um, about the Padre scene is somehow he convinces me that he knows what he's doing. Like, as as he's, like, flipping all these switches and using this magnet thing to plug this that thing in, it looks like he knows what he's doing. Like, in a weird way, I don't feel like I'm having to be like, all right, this kid's just being fed directions off stage. It feels very natural to him.
0: And and, and yeah. as ridiculous as the you know, uh, the idea of him you know, bumbling his way through the battle and winning, they, they, there is the scene earlier on where he's learning from the pilot how to fly a, a, a ship. So I guess he set that up, sort of.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
1: so I, I also just want to say there's a, a YouTube video called. It's like a, a music video type thing set to Anakin called The Chosen One. And I think it's like 10 minutes. To, it made me be like, oh my gosh. Like I knew this character was tragic, but just chronicling his life from this slave boy to this tragic villain. it It really made me appreciate certain moments of this now to where like one moment that really never did anything for me, but that now works a lot better for me after this video is just the moment of him saying his last goodbye to his mom, you know, when she, he says, "Will I ever see you again. And she says, what does your heart tell you? <laughs> the way the video ed- edits it is heartbreaking. Cause like when he says, yes, it flashes forward to her dying in his arms. But just like Ugh. knowing everything that happens after this makes though, like those little moments of him and a line that for some reason, I never really caught before. Um, that stood out to me this time was whenever Qui-Gon is saying, you know, he does good without ask of reward. And she says, he knows nothing of greed. You, you get that from him. He, he does just seem like such a well-intentioned, nice little kid. Um, and it, it, I think it really makes his fall that much more tragic when we see just
0: how innocent and sweet he was as a little boy. And what's so cool watching this one? Looking forward to to the next two films, that, and we, where you you see what leads to his fall, you see that desire to save everyone. It's already completely there. You know, he's the one who offers. You know, you're never going to make it to the outskirts. So, so you come to my home, uh, you know, to wait out the sandstorm, or the fact that he you know he instantly dives in this kind of harebrained plan to uh, bet to make some bets to win the parse. Yeah, you know, that's, that's all him. He's, he's, he's already trying to save everyone. Um, and that's just, you know, a, I think a great thing, uh, as far as the character development goes across the series.
2: Yeah. And I mean, 3PO is this thing he builds. He says it's a protocol, protocol droid to help mom. Like, it's not just a toy for him to play with. Like he, he wants it for his mother.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm. And he has actually, he has great chemistry with that, with that puppet. Mm. Mm-hmm. He has been a great pal. Yeah. Um, <laughs> a couple other characters I do I want to talk about. It's just, I, vague, vaguely racist stereotypes aside, I don't, I don't really have an interest in getting into that. I do like just all the alien creatures where we're, uh, introduced to like just th- these incredibly cowardly Neimoidians. Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah. nomordians yep. Yeah. nomordians Yeah. Just, I, it, it's, it makes so much sense that these guys would have a droid army because obviously none of their race wants to actually fight just things like that. And, um, or Wado who's, I absolutely love Watto. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, boss, Nass, I think is just so hilarious. Um, yeah, I, I, I people complain about the characters, the like, side characters, but I think aside from Jar Jar, I, I really like all the, uh, different aliens we run so into.
1: you going to talk about Jar Jar?
0: I'd rather not. <laughs> 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 okay. Might, might as well. Go ahead.
1: Um, uh, I don't know your feelings towards him, Blaine. Um, As I said, over the years, I've actually become really positive about this movie to the point where like, like complaints aside, like our problems with it aside, I can kind of say that I still love the movie and have a blast watching it. The one thing where I think all of the complaints are true is Jar Jar. I, I really do dislike this character. Um, And it's, it's because he's, he's, one of the most annoying kinds of characters where he constantly is doing something that messes things up, but in some random stroke of luck, he saves the day and is like rewarded for it. And at some points it goes beyond just like bumbling into winning, but it's like like an act of cowardice. And like with Captain Tarpaul's, you know, saying, What are we gonna do now, Jar Jar? And it's just like, Oh, I give up. I give up. It's just he's constantly doing something that's undermining the scene. And every one of his gags just sticks out. And it's like, I think the most eye-rollingly obnoxious scene in the movie is for some reason, the the one that just annoys me the most is like when he gets his numb tongue and he's got this (laughs) wrench. It's just, we've got this, it's, it's following this very powerful scene Qui-Gon just had with Shmi and, you know, Anakin is putting together this pod racer that he's, been building for years like it's it's a great scene and sort of just like we don't need to constantly go back to him and it's just every single second he's on screen he contributes nothing except for these gags that really like fall flat completely i think the only scene involving him that gets a laugh from me is as he's he's trying to stop that that droid and Anakin says hit the nose and he's it's so cartoonish but it, it makes me laugh he, he picks it up by its neck and whenever he, Anakin first says hey they both look at him and the droid just like does that cartoonishly quick <laughs> kick to yeah. the cross it's just it cracks me up but other than that just his humor it's just for me he's just such an unwelcome addition and I why was he taken to Mos Espa? Like, the original party going there was Qui-Gon, R2, and Jar Jar, and I have no idea why Qui-Gon,
0: as wise as, as he is, is like, All right.
2: <laughs> I don't think there's, I like, I think that's some of uh, Obi-Wan's wit is he was able to convince them that they they needed to, t- to take Jar Jar away.
0: <laughs> he's just smirky as they walk up into the desert. Yeah.
2: Uh, yeah, I, I feel like, too, he... I, I really, I thought Jar Jar was funny as a kid when I was eight or nine years old, um, and everything was funny. I feel like now there are times when I'm like, okay, like that's not a bad, that's not a altogether terrible gag. But then it seems like he always pushes it a step further. So like with that scene where they're fixing up the, the pod, like he gets his tongue stuck in there. Okay, like yeah, detracts from some cool stuff, like isn't the funniest thing ever, whatever. But then they have to take it a step further and he gets his hand stuck in there. So it's, I feel like it's always just one step beyond what it needs to be. It's not even like mm-hmm. just that he interjects funny little moments. It's like he, he steals scenes almost.
0: Yeah. I've, I, I got to say, you know, before we, I go to criticizing him, is I loved him as a child. And yeah. you know, Luke's his, uh, you know, defense has been always, you know, I made these for children. And well, I, I, don't, I don't believe that that excuses bad filmmaking or whatnot, but this character does work for children. Children love him. And I loved him. And while yeah, I I, I agree he's an absolutely bad character. I think there is something to be said for that. I don't know what what to be said, but something something should be said about it. Um, but yeah, yeah, he's just the he's on he's an entirely different film from everyone else. Like his level of humor is entirely his own, and it's entirely slapstick. And he's always forced into every scene. Where he doesn't need to be there, and they make him important to the scene, where like he he's constantly like saving the day and doing things like that, when it is entirely by accident. No, like nothing he does is actually intentional, and like that, that. So it makes like his successes aren't rewarding because he's not even trying. So it, it's just like a failure of a character on so many levels.
2: Yeah, one of my favorite things from the making of the Phantom Menace documentary is there's a scene pretty early on in the documentary that I. I <laughs> For the life of me, I can't tell whether it's ironic or not, but I love it. Uh, George Lucas is talking. I forget who he's talking to as well, but he's he's like, he says Jar Jar is the key to all of this. <laughs> We've never had a character as funny I
1: as Jar Jar. that's Jar. where you were going. That's, it's so like, watching that and since it's like a behind the scenes feature, it almost felt like I was watching a fan yep. documentary <laughs> about the making of this. It felt like that exaggerated. Like, it's... It's almost like this pause as he's staring at the storyboards and it's just like Jar Jar is the key to <laughs> all of this.
0: Like it's you, like it couldn't be scripted. It's yeah, just too perfect. Yeah, it is. Yeah, um, I guess. Well, however, I guess I would want to just uh, say to Ahmed Best that I, th- I think it, the vocal performance, you know, the fact that he's able to go through these crazy lines at that speed with uh, with those crazy vocal um ranges uh, is pretty impressive, even if it doesn't amount to anything good in the end.
1: It's not at all the actor's fault. Yep. In fact, like, honestly, the only redeeming thing is that s- sometimes the way he says things is kind of, like, funny. I, w- I say hello boyos, like, <laughs> almost daily. So, if anything. I
0: give up. Uh, I give up. <laughs> Blaine, it, uh, I guess we've pretty much covered characters. Is there another thing you want to talk about?
2: Yeah, no, I'm good on characters for, for now. I was going to say, there's one last
1: character.
0: Um, the, phant- the Phantom Menace.
1: We've, we've got to talk about Sheev Palpatine. Yeah, and
0: I like that this film—you could watch this entire film and you would not know he's Sidious. However, all the hints are completely there if you do. I, just, I think that's pretty cool for you know, for a film. You know, um, you know it's to you know—he's talking. About it's made for a, a younger audience, but I think the fact that he, we have. Yeah, you know, the Phantom Mass, this character that's looming around behind everything, directing the scenes, and where if you if you know what's going on, you can see all the strings. But if you don't, you know he's still a, a legitimate character with a purpose in the story.
1: To me, this entire trilogy is like it's his story. Mm-hmm. You know, Anakin goes on a journey. Like there's so many things surrounding it, but it, in my eyes, this trilogy is like Palpatine's rise to power. every, every single scene. Ian McDermott is in. He's so good. And I think the highlight for me would be after he's like, just masterfully instilled doubt in Padme in the entire political system before we even get to the hearing. Yeah. And there's just something so perfect about that Senate scene. And also just in terms of design, the Senate building oh my gosh. is incredible. That's one of the coolest, even if it's entirely digital, that's one of the coolest locations in any film ever made um but that scene he's like whispering a play-by-play of everything before it happens he is like the perfect manipulator you know it says like oh this guy making the objection he's also he's funding the uh, or he's funded by the trade federation like he's call he's calling everything before it happens to the point you completely understand why Padme votes." for no confidence in Valorum that whole like people complain about politics in the prequels I think they're like there's absolutely nothing interesting about the trade dispute between the Trade Federation and Naboo that's boring but everything that happens actually on Coruscant that's not the problem with the prequels because I think scenes like that are some of the highlights of the whole prequel trilogy just watching him manipulate this system he's like that he's claiming to be corrupt and broken and worming his way into like the top of this corrupt system it's so good
0: yeah let's let's talk about that now actually the one of the big criticisms of this film is that you know star wars isn't about politics it shouldn't be about politics um there's that uh have you seen the dear jj abrams video that went around a couple years ago blaine
2: I don't think I have.
0: It's it's like this gorgeously animated video. It's, it's about you know, it's like a uh, open letter to J.J. To Abrams about what Star Wars should and shouldn't be. Is like you know, it ha- it has to be a Western. It has to take place on the frontier. It can't have politics. It can't be shiny, and it, it's just it's so weird. This whole thing the fandom kind of created after the prequels, like oh they're, they're like they're too shiny. As if that's somehow a criticism. Like the ships are new. <laughs> we we're not on the frontier anymore. It's no longer Western. We have there's politics. As if that's automatically bad. And I think that's like the fundamental difference between like the old generation of fans and then the new generation that came up with the prequels. Like I think our understanding of what Star Wars is is fundamentally different. And I, I think like just the entire notion of that. The fans, can I mean, first off, can tell the creator what his stories have to be about is incredibly arrogant, but I, I think Lucas always had this huge vision for this universe, and and you can have this crazy hive of scum and villainy in Tatooine, but you can also go to Coruscant, you know, the 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 center of this decadent and corrupt empire, and and I, I think I for me, even as a kid. I was absolutely fascinated by the politics and I love that he, he he was able to create a believable system of politics with this with this r- believable corruption and you know showing this guy po- putting it, politically maneuvering his way to the top that even you know, a 10-year-old could completely follow and th- that right there is pretty impressive.
2: Yeah, I agree with you 100%. I if if you do end up listening to Home on Radio at any point, you'll know that I'm actually a fan of Star Wars politics. I really oh, hate following oh yeah. politics in real life, <laughs> but I, I love Star Wars politics. So and much more fun in Star Wars. It is. It if, really if, is. If
0: the Senate had floating shares that people would go up whenever they spoke, I would watch Senate hearings.
2: I would, yes, I would watch that. Um, we, need to, we need to see about getting those on uh, Bloomberg or C-SPAN or whatever. Um, but yeah, I so... Also, I think around the time The Phantom Menace was released, we were doing some, like, U.S. government stuff. And it was around the time of a U.S. presidential election. And so I was, like, very fascinated in real-life politics at that time, too. Oh, foolish young me. <laughs> and, but more, like, the political systems than I was actually what was, you know, candidates or anything like that. And so, like, I even enjoyed, like, trying to figure out some of the politics there, um, even, even as a young kid. So I don't it. I just don't even have a category for not liking the political stuff. It's, it just doesn't, I don't know. It just, it, it just doesn't resonate with me because, because I'm a fan of it. Um, I could definitely see how it gets in the way of, uh, of a plot narrative. Um, but I don't know if the fan in me enjoys it. I was going to say too, I, I just, I fundamentally disagree with this claim. And, and if I'm stepping on stuff we're going to talk about later then stop me, but I fundamentally disagree with this claim that, that, with the prequels or with the last Jedi or whenever you want to say it happened, like that star Wars suddenly became political. I think that is incredibly misguided. And I also think George Lucas thinks that that is incredibly misguided because George Lucas himself said that the original trilogy, like star Wars, a new hope was political. Um, And he, he fleshes that out even a little bit. Like, when you're talking about, like, an an evil empire that has a mega weapon that can destroy planets, and this is all taking place in when the Cold War is going on, um, like, that's political. Just because something is subtext, like, isn't, like, right there on the surface doesn't mean that it isn't political,
0: like. And you even have that line uh, from Tarkin, how... About how the uh, the empire has has dissolved the Senate and has you know, centered all power now around himself and his his uh, uh, military governors around the the galaxy. So uh, yeah, it's always been there. But I, yeah. I do like just the notion of what is Star Wars. Like I can't you know there are, there are, I can't count the the amount of YouTube like videos who, who were just ranting about what Star Wars has to be and what it can't be and what i love about the i think the clone wars the, did after you know after the prequels came out and then with the clone wars and rebels i think lucas or, and then now, now uh, disney is like slowly just or not not always slowly just, it's just like chipping away at that notion of that you know star wars has to be anything in particular like we, like the 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 vari- amount of variety of stories we get in the clone wars like uh, that happen occur on every level of society and all, like just every genre I think is like you know g- completely smashing that entire notion you know, that Star Wars has to be a Western, and you know, Star Wars has to be old and grimy, and like that. that, that for me, that was something I never even understood. Like, like the prequels were just as much Star Wars. You know, it, it's just it's Star Wars in a different time. Yeah.
1: And as a huge fan of the Clone Wars series, um, and honest, I love the politics of Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith. I love that it's here because it's get it's we explore it more later. Like there's actually some really cool political episodes in the Clone Wars, and it's yeah, like you said, I this is just as much Star Wars as anything else. Just because it's preceded by something that happens to be different doesn't mean that's like you know the standard now that it has to be. So yeah, I think by ha- like opening the universe up in this other time. With these, almost a different kind of genre, like you just allow for so many different cool kind of possibilities. So yeah, I I just have no idea why why people think that politics has no place at all here.
2: Yeah, Star Wars would be incredibly stale if we were telling stories that took place 30 years before the original trilogy and everything looked exactly the same. It, it wouldn't make sense from a world building perspective. It would Make for a really tepid story, mm-hmm. uh, in my opinion. So,
0: and, and you know, showing the the wealth and decadence of an empire at its height is thematically relevant. So, yeah, they, people like things shiny. So, yeah. Um, we uh, moving on to I think a more a more negative section. We've been pretty positive, and there there are definitely flaws in this film. Um, I think the the core flaw with this film, aside from the stilted acting and goofy. Humor is the way the plot is structured. Like, like the, the, the central conflict in this film is Queen Amidala struggling to save her planet. Okay, you know, so the first act takes place on Naboo. You know, they, they go there, they save the queen, they leave, and then they go to Tatooine, and that entire plot stops. And then we have the B plot, which is Obi- Qui Gon discovering Anakin. Becoming convinced he's the chosen one developing this relationship with him, and then you know, taking him from his family and bring him to Coruscant. And so, you know, we, we have that the, the whole 40 minutes of basically him trying to get Anakin to come along and trying to fix the the the, the hyperdrive generator, and we have the awesome pod race. And so you know that's about 40 minutes in the center of the film, and then the kind of the, the two plots come back together again, and while they're on Coruscant, the Queen is petitioning the Senate. And Anakin's being tested by the by the, um, the Jedi Council, and then they all go back to Naboo, and then we're you know we're back full force into the the plot that we started with, and they save Naboo. But never once does the story of Anakin Skywalker become thematically relevant to the story of this f- evil occupation and then uh, re- resistance on Naboo. It's it's just a very weirdly structured film, and so it kind of makes the entire middle on Tatooine feel completely irrelevant to the story because it never actually connects back into it. So, as much as I like everything that happens, and I like the characters, I like the world, the pod race is amazing. It's you still can't escape the feeling of like, why exactly are we here?
2: Yeah, and here for this length of time. Yeah, I feel like that is the probably the underlying issue people have. It's not the politics themselves necessarily. Um, In the film, but it's the way they are structured into the larger narrative of the film.
1: And like, there's almost not a a direct and clear protagonist of the film. You know, you kind of have it. Like, is it Anakin? Not really. He doesn't even come in until you know the second act. Is it? Is it Qui Gon? To me, it feels mostly like almost in terms of character growth, Obi Wan. um, But regardless of who you say they have no attachment with naboo they have no emotional stakes in the plot like i mean obviously any any person who has any goodness in them is going to want to fight for liberation but here it's just like it could have been any planet it's just there's absolutely no no, nothing to attach our characters to naboo um and it doesn't really come into play later it's just I don't know. I, there there's. I, I personally have almost no investment in the occupation of Naboo or anything like that.
0: And I was thinking about you know how to fix that and just you know how to streamline this plot and make it more focused and give that emotional heft to the final battle and or, and you know give that emotional connection between Anakin and Naboo. I really like. I, I really think Anakin should have been from Naboo. Um, like we've seen, we see like with the Gungans and with the the uh, the human. Uh, residents that there is the society on that planet is obviously very fragmented. So I think it would be believable that they could have like an area where they have slaves and, or like some where where if they were in hiding in the underworld, trying to find a way to escape this, this planet. And then they, you know, they find Anakin and he helps them escape. What that does is, you know, it can, it connects, it, it makes us not have to go on that entire detour, but it also, it connects Anakin emotionally to the the core conflict on the boo you know it, it it saves it saves time and i think it, w- it would bring him into the main plot so that way when they go back and fight they're fighting we actually you know we we have these we have more emotional anchor points and he has a reason to be here he has a reason to be fighting just i think that just one change like that could have like streamlined the whole film and made it a much more focused and emotionally fulfilling story
1: if you did that you could also I think you you could go into the plot post occupation like by the federation and so you give him that much more reason to become a jedi you know if if it's the republic and the and these two jedi that come back and help you know well, these are the people who liberated us
0: mm-hmm.
2: yeah and if you do that you get another way to drive home this idea that padme is going from this incredibly naive person to someone who realizes that the system itself is broken because she's completely shocked on Naboo when she figures out that there's still slavery in the galaxy. She just has no, no register for it. And I feel like that would hit home even more with her character and be more powerful for her character. If she figured out that that was not only happening, but was happening right under her nose on her, her planet.
0: Oh, wow. That's cool. Actually. Okay, um, we're, we're running pretty long, so I, I just want to run through just a couple of things that I really enjoy. I, I think the uh, the production design on this film is absolutely astonishing. Like going through this, the the especially features is just the depth they went into each and every culture, and to make it so visually distinct, but also ha- you know have that 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 visual distinctiveness play into who their culture is like the way the gun guns are entirely amphibian and, and the, the entire design of their city and their vehicles is kind of centered around that um obviously the, the trade federation is this is this like giant mechanistic mechanic mechanistic, uh, mechanistic <laughs> corporation uh so obviously their army is robots and just uh, and just the way we and we go to Tatooine and you have that obviously a very poor rundown thing and just the, the 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 depth of the design in every culture is Really, really wonderful, and just the and the ships, <laughs> the 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 uh, the Naboo, uh, spaceships. I think are some of the most beautiful things in all of Star Wars. Like, I think if I came down to it, I would rather have a Naboo fighter than an X-wing. Those things are just amazing looking.
1: Yeah, I mean, they everything even just the, you know the their what is it, the Nubian, I think. Like the green I mean, ship, how um, the ship they escape on that they need the new hyperdrive for?
2: Uh-huh. Yeah, it's a Nubian. Uh,
1: we have lots of that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the only one around here who says <laughs> um, that. Just how sleek that is, and you can see the continu like the visual continuity between that and the fighters and the actual city. Like Theed is gorgeous. Like, oh yeah.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I, I mean. Whatever, if Gungans are the price to pay to have Naboo, I guess I'll pay it because Thede is just such a gorgeous location. Their machinery is so cool. And one of the things that I really love is that there's even visual continuity in terms of the costume design from the original trilogy to now. Like, like when you think of the op- like the officers or especially the guy who sticks out in my mind is the pilot who has like these exaggerated like shoulder pad type things almost like they look almost like this like 70s 80s version of like a sci-fi society um so what like there's no real disconnect in terms of like even things like fashion um so yeah just everything about the design there is, is so cool and yeah the, those fighters are just amazing
0: and before you go about bad nothing the gungans a bubble city is the coolest thing that's ever been on film and i will <laughs> not have you argue about that
1: it looks cool, and the music is awesome too. Like that, yeah. that kind of vote, like choir type thing, as, as you're going into it, it all it makes it sound mysterious before we get there.
0: I, and yeah. I, I like the gun goods. I, I I think aside from Jar Jar, the race is really interesting. Um And as far as the, I think that the battle is cool, they ha- the way they, the way they fight with that giant shield and these balls of corrosive fluid, I think. It, uh, it, it actually gets across the, um, you know, nature versus uh industry um, theme, that, uh, I think, a lot better than he did in Return of the Jedi.
2: Yeah. Because yeah. it's believable this time around. But yeah, that too. <laughs> yeah, and we, uh, there is that shot where, right before the battle, when the Gungans are coming out onto the field, and you see the plant, like, the three-leafed plant sticking up, and the Gungans come out on... Um,
0: mm-hmm. uh,
2: they come out, and they, like, on their... Um, Shoot, I just forgot the species name, but they're horses. Basically, they um they have the three pronged uh, things to blend in, and it's like, oh wow, like this is really awesome. Like they they that blend shot in is amazing. It was used it in is. all the
1: trailers, but them emerging from that swamp area, it's, yeah, oh, it's so cool. Talking about you know that that battle, I think honestly one of the biggest highlights for this movie is the march of the trade federation theme. That is. John Williams, honestly, I think absolutely matched his work on the original trilogy with yes. his music here. And I mean, this movie gave us the Trade Federation theme and Duel of the Fates. And those are arguably two of the greatest things in my mind he's ever composed. Um, it's just so perfect. And honestly, if every theme from Star Wars, i probably just either hum or whistle the Trade Federation theme more than anything else. It's such a perfect, like, it's the perfect musical equivalent of what we're seeing on screen. Mm-hmm. Like, if you were to distill you know, d- just this image, and there's a lot of great images of them marching, like that one shot of the long line of the army as they're heading into Theed, and you hear that, that march playing, it just, it fits so perfectly. So there's so much, you know, I, I know people complain about the CGI and all this and that, But to me, there's so many moments where this movie just looks gorgeous and it sounds amazing. I I don't know. I think there's visually and audibly, there's more good here than bad.
2: Yeah, I am 100% with you. And I think with this new era of Star Wars, not only do we get some excellent new Star Wars films, but it also makes it an easier time to be a prequel fan, I feel. Um it's not quite as shameful as it once was. I mean people I don't think people are going around talking about how much they love the prequels now, but people are focused on hating other things. <laughs> it seems yeah.
1: Like. yeah. It's almost like people are completely oblivious to this what feels like to me a very obvious cycle of oh, prequels are in now. Like to me, I honestly do know like a lot of people who are just like unapologetically love the prequels. And it's almost the point to where you don't even have to defend that love anymore. And now, okay, we're supposed to, we're supposed to hate these new ones, but you know, when the inevitable sequel, sequel trilogy comes out, I'll be able to finally publicly talk about how much I love the sequel trilogy.
0: <laughs> yeah. I, I, and just, I think, I don't think Lucas gets enough credit for the technological achievement that this film was. Um I don't think it's ridiculous. To say this was probably the most ambitious film ever made at the time. Um, like for example, the battle like that, that the, the, I don't think that we, we'd had CGI, CGI armies of that size before. And just it, it's even now it's still kind of cool looking at it. just the two armies of of uh, Gungus and droids coming the each other. And the, the image of the droid, like the, the armies that come and then assemble themselves in front of the enemies is so cool. I just, yeah, I think there's, and even the space battles, I think the space battles are like pretty much almost photorealistic. So I think just... Overall, looking at the way that he mixed uh, models, actual sets, and mi- uh, there's a lot of miniature locations. Like people talk about the prequels being all CGI, but I think they would be pretty shocked at how much the, of act- there is in this film in particular that is actually practical.
1: Yeah, and lastly, before we before we move into close, I don't want to talk about this too long, but I think you know we talked about the the flaws of the movie's structure, but I do want to point out like how well this movie moves. I yeah, think for all its structural problems, this movie is paced mm-hmm. incredibly well. Like from the very beginning, and man, there's something to be said for how much fun it is. Whenever Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan simultaneously ignite their sabers, <laughs> that like Nabu theme kicks in and they're just like force-throwing thing. Like, that's just unbridled joy to me. Um, like in the opening when their lightsabers ignite in the smoke or whenever they're freeing the prisoners. But like from the moment this movie starts to the end, we're always moving. We're always doing something interesting, even if this, the way it's structured isn't perfect. We're we don't feel like it's bloated. We may realize it, you know, in retrospect. But just it moves really, really well.
0: And, and there's something really cool I noticed in the screenwriting that, that the way Lucas, whenever a new element is introduced to the story, be it you know plot or a character or a concept within this world, just whenever a new any kind of new thing is introduced he introduces it in dialogue beforehand so like we never have trouble believing like when we're every time we go into a new situation or introduce this crazy new thing we already know it exists and so it, it makes the uh, the world building feel that much more real and tangible because every time we're introduced to something we're already familiar with it and so it, it allows the story to just flow so much more naturally they never have to stop in the moment and say Oh this thing right here is this and this and this and then move on because we're already familiar with I think that, that like he he's rightfully criticized for his dialogue but I think that is a piece of like I think brilliant screenwriting that he brought to this film that no I, I've never heard anyone acknowledge but I really noticed this time is how it just you know we're always kept the, the dialogue is constantly keeping us abreast of every bit of information we have to know uh before we we have to know it and I think that's really clever. Mm-hmm, okay oh, yeah. sure. <laughs> one last thing before we close and that pod races are awesome, and I I don't trust anyone who doesn't like them.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's just the
1: sound design,
0: man. Oh yeah, gosh. oh I know. The the sound design in this is every bit as good as anything that Ben Burke did in the first, the original trilogy. It's like the sound of the the, uh, the lasers bouncing off the shield, or oh
2: my gosh, it really like I think one easily one of my favorite Star Wars sounds is the B one battle droids walking.
0: Mm-hmm. I don't know why the I just little, love little like that clack. clicking sound. Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I love the sound design here and pod races anytime even today when I see those those zero turn lawnmowers that have the two levers that you push forward <laughs> oh like, yes. yes that's a pod yes.
0: alright I think we're, I, we're there's so much more we could talk about this but we are running out of time uh, so I, I, before we're going to close I want to get you guys uh, star rating and ranking of this uh, film uh, within the other Star Wars films so actually is, with just, I guess with the first four that we've talked about um, Blaine, what is your star rating for this film, and how does it rank with them?
2: Yeah, I would give this a bold four.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, That's
2: what the heart does. The heart wants what it wants.
0: <laughs> I guess since you won't be back once we get farther on, how, where does this rank in Star Wars at large?
2: You know, honestly, I, I've i never really attempted to rank Star Wars as a whole, because it changes and grows on me. But I will. I guess I'll just put it like this. like The Phantom Menace is actually top third for me, probably. Dang. In Star Wars, like, it is really high, and again, that is, that's simply because of what it meant to me as a kid, and, like, it being my generation's Star Wars, and I, I just can't erase that, I can't let go of it. Um, I don't think it's technically in the top, and when I say technically, I mean, like, formally from a filmmaking standpoint, I don't think it's in the top third, but for me, it is. Mm-hmm. So, there you go. And
0: you James? Nice. Uh,
1: so...
2: Before, I would have always just said, like, a
1: very clean, like, 2.5 stars. It's got a lot of problems, got a lot of strengths. I wind up right there in the middle. But this last viewing really, and honestly, just, like, my relationship with it over the last year has caused me to appreciate it even more. So, I feel now, like, I will, I'll come down, like, on the positive side and say I give it 3 out of 5. And I think Return of the Jedi is better So I'm. I think I'm gonna retroactively raise that three star to three and a half star, Um, but yeah, I I would give this one three out of five stars because I do think it's uh, it pros. Its pros outweigh its cons.
0: Yeah, right there with you. I I, have been two point five for a while, but now like seeing, I think like things like the editing or the way Lucas uh, did the plot of the pacing has uh, definitely increased my respect for it. So, yeah, I'm going from a 2.5 to 3 as well. And as far as the ranking, <laughs> basically, for, for, for the films we've done, it's A New Hope, Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi, this film. So it, it makes it sound like it's getting consecutively worse, but I, I don't really think about it that way. Um, so on its initial release, it grossed uh, $431 million domestically and $552 million uh, foreign. Uh, The 3D re-release made 43 million, which brought it to over a a billion for a lifetime gross of 1 billion and 127 million. I'm sorry, and 27 million. I I know they were intending to do 3D releases for for all of them, but I, I guess they wasn't. They didn't make as much as they wanted, so that idea. Never went through.
1: From what I heard, it was because it was right around the time of Disney buying them out, and they just decided that re-releasing these weren't really a priority, and I, they were trying to shift the narrative back to like original trilogy era.
0: Hmm. We talk. We talking about the reception of a film. I don't even know how to start talking about the reception uh, that this film garnered. uh I guess you you probably remember more of it, kind of in the original time. What was it like? Uh, as far, like, what was the general conversation surrounding this film like, Blaine, when it first came out that you remember?
2: Well, yeah. So, like, thankfully, most of my... Co- my dad was always a a pretty happy Star Wars fan, which is I'm learning is a weird thing. Um, <laughs> so, there was never a lot of negativity about things that went on in Star Wars in our, in our household. And then, of course, like, most of the people I was talking to around the time of the movie's release were, you know, people my age. And we were kids, so we all loved it, like... I don't think I knew a kid who was you know, convinced that Lucas had ruined their childhood or, yeah. or anything like that. I didn't have any like Star Wars shirt burners or anything in my circle of friends. So I, I, I thankfully have been hashtag blessed to grow up on the positive side mm-hmm. of the fandom for most of my life. It's only since I uh, got plugged into um, social media as an adult that I've got to see the nasty side of things.
0: Yeah, so I, I, the, it, it seemed like the film got, like, fairly positive, like, mildly positive views when it was released. Like, it, and then the kind of the criticisms and the hate just built up from there. And the same with you, I I, I love these movies. And when I first, you know, got into social media, I was, like, completely flabbergasted to find out people don't like these movies. Like, how could you not like them? They're awesome. Um, so, yeah, and just the – it's crazy that the narrative surrounding them just – how unified pop culture was for like a decade That these films are like the worst, like the, the word prequels became this byword for ter- like cinematically terrible. And all of the, that, that kind of was the, that was the, uh, the atmosphere in film culture. I think for a good decade, uh, right about, I guess, almost like honestly, it feels like up to like three or four years ago. Like prequel bashing was the national pastime of film buffs, <laughs> and it's so cool, crazy seeing how that has shifted over the last few years. As you said, some of it is simply people now want to hate Disney, so they they'll pretend they like they actually like the prequels now. But it really, the conversation has changed. I think some a lot of that is also, you know, this new generation of fans who has never known anything besides like the, the prequels has always been right alongside the originals as far as what Star Wars is to them. And so they, they don't bring that extra level of hate. And it's just so fascinating watching how the fandom is slowly shifting. And to where now, I'm honestly kind of taken aback when I see someone just like viciously bashing the prequels. Like I'm like, oh, I thought we were past that as a society now or something. Yeah.
2: <laughs> right. Well, I mean, the, um, the pastor, theologian, and, and uh, politician, Thomas Chalmers, preached a sermon one time that was called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And I think there's a dark side version of that that is like the only thing that can drive out a hatred. I.e., the hatred of the prequels is a greater hatred for <laughs> Disney and the new era of Star Wars films. And I will say, I will say this in defense of of the negativity surrounding Star Wars right now. Uh, maybe not in defense of the negativity, especially in the way it's coming out, but in defense of maybe some of some of the fans who are struggling with this, like there is an entire generation of star Wars fans who were born in the seventies to early eighties or something like that. Maybe they caught some or all of the star Wars films as young kids in, in theaters or barely caught one or or what have you. But mostly they grew up with like the original trilogy. And then there was nothing. It was the dark ages, right? Um, There was nothing. And so they, what they had were things like West End Games Star Wars RPG, and they had uh, in the '90s when we had this explosion with the EU content. Like they devoured these novels. Like that's that's what my dad grew up on. You know, um, he he ate up all of the Star Wars RPG stuff and the novels and everything, and uh, shared that with me. But um, a lot of the EU, the stuff that takes place in in the EU now, Legends is um, it took place after Return of the Jedi and it dealt with the new Jedi order and all of this, all of these things. Um, the vast majority of stuff that was super popular, at least there was stuff that, I mean, old Republic became popular later on in the two thousands and stuff. But, but early on we had like Timothy Zahn's, you know, Thrawn trilogy. And, and, um, they lived with that stuff for, you know, 20 years or thereabouts. And it became very dear to them like stories do. And they, they, that is their Star Wars, the same way that the, for better or for worse, the prequel era is mine, mm-hmm. and so it's I get that it's super hard to see the stuff that you grew up loving, not thrown out the window because nobody's burning those books, like Disney is still happy to sell those books and and take the the proceeds, um but to see that stuff being yeah not canon anymore like that is i sympathize with that and i sympathize with those people like now the people that are being super vicious um i don't know where exactly all of that is all of that is coming from um i don't know great things come out of fear leads to hang anger anger leads to hate <laughs> and hate leads to suffering and so we're deep in yeah. suffering right now
0: yeah as far as like prequel hate in particular i think i think it's it's it comes from like you you have like the most vehement of fandoms in history you know and then they everyone intimately connects Star Wars with childhood and so you know coming to like for as much as I, I love the prequels for being different than the the the, uh, the original trilogy they are they are something fundamentally different like they are not the happy-go-lucky adventure stories, good versus evil. You know, it's called The Phantom Menace. It's, it's about an evil that we can't even see. Like, th- mm-hmm. the original trilogy is, is lauded for having that very clear black-and-white morality, you know, these guys are good, these guys are bad, now fight each other. This is a film about, you know, political intrigue and doubt and fear and paranoia, and we never know who our true enemy is within this film. And, it, you know, it's, it's about... It, Overall, the prequels are about the fall of an empire, so it's very political. Like It is fundamentally something different from what that, those stories were. And I think like, the difference between like, the prequels fans and the haters, the ones who hate them, are, are people who view St- Star Wars... Star Wars is that serialized adventure storytelling that Lucas was mimicking. That's what Star Wars has to be, whereas I think the new generation of fans except that Star Wars can be something bigger than that. You know, it can yeah. be all different kinds of stories. Uh, and I think, you know, I think just as, as the years go on, the acceptance, you know, obviously there are a lot of f- legitimate fundamental flaws that have to be overlooked. Like, like in order to enjoy this film, you have to be re- willing to go with a lot of problems. But yeah, so I, I, I don't want to sound like I'm entirely bashing people who didn't like this film. I, I think it's very understandable, but I, I think it's just fascinating the way the, the conversation has moved over the years
1: I know we keep pushing length, but I think one last thing that I do think has helped contribute towards a more positive narrative is uh, things like the Clone Wars too, like Clone Wars. And then even beyond that Rebels, which has a lot of ties to the Clone Wars. There's, there's a really dedicated following to these shows now. And with that came the benefit of fleshing out some of the prequels ideas that kind of ended up getting overlooked in the actual film. So I just think this this entire like the Clone Beyond the film, just the era. You know, you have the Galactic Civil War and you have the Clone War era. I think that as an era has just kind of become increasingly appreciated over time with things like video games and the cartoons.
2: Yep.
0: Yeah. For sure. Yeah, you could have several podcasts just discussing the the reception of this film. I I would recommend there's a documentary called "The People vs. George Lucas" that like really in-depth chronicles this whole the saga of how yes. the fans reactions and then kind of looking back on that with a bit more perspective i think it's, it's very fascinating very well put together so i would recommend that yeah. so i man, i feel like we only got to half of what we wanted to discuss but we're going pretty long so i think we need to wrap this up uh thanks for coming on Bl- uh, blaine <laughs> <laughs> yeah no
2: thanks thanks for having me it's always great to get to talk about prequel stuff
0: yeah um so uh, i want to give you another chance um, before we uh, move out to uh you know, plug your show uh, for our listeners.
2: Yeah, well, like I said, you can find us anywhere you find podcasts. It's it's called Home One Radio. Uh, my co-host Josh Crabb and I were talking about Star Wars every week. We really... Sort of, I'm sure Josh did this too, but I'm going to repeat it because I can. But, but like, so our podcast we don't really focus on news all of that all that much because one we can't keep up with it anymore, and there are people who do it a lot better <laughs> than us. Um, so we really focus on the stories that we have and the stories that are coming out, talking about movies, books, comics, um, anything we can get our hands on, really. And in the spirit of what we've done here tonight, like we really do try to stay positive. We it's not like we'll never mention criticisms or concerns or things like that. But it's not hard to find um, negativity uh, in Star Wars. You don't have to look very hard. And uh, we try to avoid that uh, to the best of our ability with Home One Radio. So you can check us out there, Home One Radio, on Twitter, podcasts, the internet, everywhere.
0: I'm a pretty big fan of your show. I think it's it's very, very entertaining. Oh, thanks. I appreciate that.
2: It's super refreshing to have
1: Joshua come on. And now you... Like the amount of positivity to come from both the prequels and the sequel trilogy <laughs> just feels so foreign at this point. So,
2: yeah.
0: All right. And uh, if you want to follow us, um, we are on Facebook as Franchise Fatigue Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Franchised Pod. And if you want to uh, find our other episodes, you can go to franchisefatiguepodcast.com. Uh, where can people follow you, James?
1: Um, so, beyond this, it's primarily just letterboxed. Um, my name there is JL Hamry. It's J L H A M R I. Um, at this point with school, I've pretty much completely fallen behind reviewing the things I've seen, like actually writing extensive thoughts. I still rate everything and rank them and things like that. And um, It's you know, really, really fun keeping up with like people's opinions just by way of like clicking on what they've seen recently. Um, so that's where you can see most of my thoughts on movies, as well as just different Facebook groups like Popcorn Theology or Feel and Film. Loads of different fun... Uh, fun groups to talk about movies in.
0: And uh, I'm also on uh, Letterboxd as Gabriel Green, and I'm on Twitter as Gabe A. Green. Um, And so next week, we'll be returning with Attack of the Clones, and if all goes well, we'll have another cool guest for that episode as well. I'm just excited to be talking about more prequels.
1: So until next week, we will see you in the sequel.
0: We'll watch your career with great interest.